from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 11th. Today, the investigation into the death of Ahmad Arbery, how the pandemic is triggering a mental health crisis, and why Gen Z is getting left behind. I'm Cleve Woodson. I'm a reporter for The Washington Post, and I'm reporting on the killing of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. That killing happened more than two months ago, on February 23rd. But we're only now finding out the details of what led up to Arbery's death. Ahmad Arbery was a 25-year-old man from Brunswick who was jogging in a suburb just outside of the city. He stopped to look inside of a house that was under construction. There were several 911 calls placed from people in the neighborhood, including from a man named Gregory McMichael and his son Travis. And the McMichaels got guns, got into their pickup truck, and went looking for Arbery. They told investigators later that they thought that he was a burglar who had tried to steal things from this house under construction. A viral video was leaked that showed the final moments of Arbery's life. It shows Arbery kind of running towards these guys in a pickup truck, and then a fight over this rifle, and then Arbery staggering to the ground and dying. Arbery ended up being shot two or three times. That video ricocheted across the world, igniting outrage everywhere, across all corners, including the Georgia governor's office, Earlier this week, I watched the video depicting Mr. Aubrey's last moments alive. I can tell you it's absolutely horrific, and Georgians deserve answers. The attorney general here and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation was handed the case, and 36 hours later, the McMichaels were arrested. But this happened two months ago. Have they been charged yet? Yeah, they've been charged with murder, and they've been charged with aggravated aggravated assault. So where did this video come from? And I would assume that, that local police there would have had it ever since the time of the killing. So why, why is the video just coming out now? And was there an attempt to try to make it not come out? Yeah, so the, the video, which is you know, technically police evidence, was apparently recorded by a third man who was involved. Police are trying to figure out what his involvement was, what exactly he did, but he definitively recorded this video. His name is William Bryan, and he recorded this video. And then, like you said, he gave it to police, he gave it to investigators and all of that stuff. But on Tuesday, a lawyer that was working with the man who recorded the video apparently leaked it to a radio station, which posted it briefly on its website. And from there it spread. And so if if police had video of this father and son killing this guy who was literally just on a run, was unarmed, they had no proof or evidence that he had burglarized anyone, then why is it that police didn't arrest them sooner or charge them sooner? And what could be their potential motivation? This is where it begins to get complicated because Gregory McMichael, one of the men that went out to 
Chase Ahmad Arbery is or, or had been an investigator for the district attorney's office. And before that, he was a county police officer. And so if you ask activists, if you ask Arbery's family, one of the things they say is that the law enforcement community was trying to shield one of their own, or that they were less willing to arrest somebody who had, you know, worked with them and been involved in the criminal justice community than they would anybody else. So for the McMichaels, what do they say about why they killed Arbery and what their defense is going to be? I mean, they haven't outlined their legal defense, but what they told police was that they thought that Arbery was the person who had been responsible for not just, you know, one burglary, but for several burglaries throughout the neighborhood over a period of time. So their their argument is that they went out, you know, legally armed, you know, to make a basically a citizen's arrest to to hold him and, you know, until the police came. In fact, I think as they're pursuing him, they're on the phone with with the police. Is there proof that there were even multiple burglaries in the neighborhood before that before that happened? We looked into whether or not there had been a string of bur- burglaries or a spat of burglaries or or whatever. I think we only found one incidence of a reported one, and that was a gun that had been stolen that, that Travis McMichael, the guy accused of doing the shooting, had reported stolen from his vehicle. So you know, it's just unclear what Gregory McMichael was talking about on the 911 call when he talks about all of these burglaries in the past. And is that legal to just go after this person and try to make a quote-unquote citizen's arrest when there is no proof that he was actually guilty of anything? I mean, if couldn't they have just called 911 and then let police, like actual police take care of it? Yeah, and that's, that, is, that is where the debate lies, right? Uh, Georgia does have a citizen's arrest statute that allows you to, you know, take some action when you have probable cause that somebody has committed a serious crime. But the question that is in this case is whether they had probable cause, whether Arbery had actually stolen something, whether they'd seen him do do absolutely anything illegal in the moments before they gave chase. On one end, you have prosecutors, including one prosecutor who has recused himself, saying they had probable cause. They thought they were dealing with the criminal. You know, Arbery had behaved suspiciously in the moments before they gave chase. And on the other end, you have people who say this was a guy that was just out for a job. So obviously this is coming at a time where so many of us are thinking about police shootings and particularly police shootings against Black people and the ways that those happen oftentimes very unfairly. But this isn't even a police shooting. This is just like a guy and his son shooting someone else in the street and then taking two months to be arrested for it. So I wonder what this case says about the state of justice for Black people who are victims of violence by white people under really concerning circumstances. It's it's interesting because one of the attorneys that's representing Arbery's family in this is the same attorney that represented Trayvon Martin's family. And they argue, their 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 camp argues that this criminal justice community, you know, did not aggressively pursue this case, didn't try to put the people accused of killing someone into handcuffs because of a number of factors, because, 
Gregory McMichael had worked with them for three decades of his career because it's an African-American man that shot and it's white people who are accused of doing the shooting. Two prosecutors in this case recused themselves. You know, they said it would not look fair and right and all that stuff for me to be on this case, right? Two Two in a row, kicking it down the road. But one of those prosecutors in recusing himself then wrote a letter to police that said, let me outline the reasons that you should not arrest the McMichaels. And we've talked to several, you know, legal professionals and, you know, they, they, they believe two things. One, that it's just highly unusual and even downright weird for somebody to say I'm recusing myself. And then, you know, on the other hand, to write a letter, you know, then talking about that case to investigators. And then on, on the other hand, they say that legal foundation that George Barnhill used to justify why the, why the McMichael shouldn't be arrested is is really shaky at best. They hadn't seen him commit a crime. They hadn't seen him steal anything. They didn't have probable cause when they decided to kind of arm themselves and go after this guy. And is there going to be any investigation into the decisions that were made right after this killing and, and why why these two people were not charged? There's multiple and parallel investigations going on. Two county commissioners over the weekend called for a federal investigation of not not just the killing, but also the people who prosecuted the killing, the people who were in charge of uh, investigating the, the killing. The Department of Justice, at the request of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, is also looking into the killing. And I, I believe it will include, you know, some aspects of how the investigation was carried out. Like I was at a I was at a rally on on Friday morning. And it was clear that people were happy that the McMichaels had been arrested the day before, but they were extremely concerned that the justice system, you know, only sort of reacted, you know, in a way they see as fair after the video was exposed. And then there's just questions about what's done in secret, what's done, what's done behind closed doors or off the public record. What it comes down to is like if if you are African American, if you are a black person in America, and you are killed in a controversial way by you know a white person, will you get the same amount of justice as anybody else? Like, will, you know, it will will the law be at its core? This case is about whether or not the community of Brunswick, you know, applied the law equally to this murder victim at the you know at the hands of one of their own. Cleve Woodson is a national reporter for The Post. On Monday, the Justice Department announced that it would assess whether federal hate crimes are appropriate in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. They're also considering looking into how the investigation was handled. We're already seeing these huge increases of depression and anxiety. And the experts I've talked to say there's this wave coming of psychological injuries that we are just as a country not prepared for. I'm William One. I'm a national health reporter. You know, we're just inundated right now with um, death 
grief, fear, anxiety, the isolation doesn't help, the loneliness. And I think all of that exerts some trauma that is, is just accumulating in people and in society. What I was hearing from experts as I was talking to them is they're kind of describing almost the shadow pandemic. You have the actual pandemic of the virus itself and the shadow pandemic that's kind of trailing by weeks or months or even years. And it doesn't get a lot of attention. We're really focused on the hospitals, on PPE, on testing. But this shadow pandemic, it could be just as serious in some ways where you're going to have families devastated. You're going to have deaths. You're going to have illnesses that people are struggling with for years to come. And I think that this is something that people probably notice anecdotally in their own life or the life of their family members in terms of people just having a hard time getting through these last few weeks and months. But but what have we seen on a larger level that says that this is a widespread and very serious problem? That That's kind of what I was coming up against, too, was just anecdotally people saying, you know, this is a really hard time. People just kind of wondering, like, worried about, you know, consequences like drug abuse going up or suicides even. And so I wanted to try to really dig into like the data. And so I started looking at things like calls to hotline, some of these surveys that are being done nationally. And there's a federal emergency hotline for people in Mm. in emotional distress after disasters. And that has gone up a thousand percent, like more than a thousand percent increase compared to April last year. Wow. So there's all these little kind of points of data. The one that really struck me is there's one online therapy um, company called uh, Talkspace. And so I was asking them to look at some of their data and they're describing how if you followed the huge jumps of of um, usage, uh, people just new users turning to online therapy to them, it follows almost exactly the map of the virus spreading. You know, New York, uh, Seattle, um, California, and and they were just kind of shocked and also quite worried about what's to come. One of the people I talked to was Paul Gianfrido, and I'm president and CEO of Mental Health America. And since the virus hit, they've seen a huge jump in people taking this online questionnaire that they offer on their website. It's a screening for depression, anxiety, serious uh, mental illnesses. And the severity is increasing as well. So it's a, a two-headed monster here. We're getting more people with mental health conditions and concerns, and the severity is greater. One of the reasons that's so key is that not everyone is going to be affected by this pandemic the same way. Some may, it maybe just see a short-term kind of hit to their mental health, but a group of us is going to experience very serious illnesses, and that's that's what these screenings do: is they identify who needs the help. COVID nineteen and current events and isolation and loneliness are all being cited prominently as the reasons people are screening positive or moderate to severe for these conditions. Two factors have not yet entered entered into the equation. One is financial problems, and the other one is grief. We're going to be having an epidemic of grief and an epidemic of financial problems if we don't do something about the mental health problems right now that already are being felt by tens of thousands of people, then that number is rapidly going to increase over the summer months and into the fall and then down the road, and it will leave us a huge bill to pay in the future. 
And is there a sense of who is at the greatest risk when it comes to mental health issues during this time? There's a few really particularly um, at-risk groups. One people have been worried about are the frontline workers. So doctors, nurses, folks at the hospitals, EMTs, but also, you know, grocery workers, delivery people. And a lot of people saw last month an emergency doctor in New York. Her name was Lorna Breen. She died by suicide. And I think people were really shocked and scared by that. Yeah, that case was so tragic. And I think it really, it made it so real because up until that point, it was kind of theoretical. Well, we know health workers are more at risk. We know they're facing really um, difficult circumstances. But when that happened, I think everybody kind of sat up and and said, this is really serious and we need to take it more seriously. And so there's that group. But there's also people who are struggling with mental illness to begin with. People even with kind of minor depression, severe depression, going to like the more serious cases like bipolar or eating disorders. Like this is a really tough time for anybody and to for someone who's already struggling. I talked to one family who has this has this one of the daughters is struggling mightily with eating disorder is down to like 80 pounds and just stuck at home now with none of the resources they had at the hospital no feeding tube none of the counseling that was available there just like what what that does to you both not both to her and to the family itself is it's quite um concerning and and what do you think that says more generally about the state of mental health care treatment in the U.S. and our ability to deal with the stress that is being put on people all over the country? You know, our, our mental health system was pretty bad to begin with. It was pretty broken before the pandemic. Part of the problem at, at, at the center of this is how we as a country or society think about mental health. You know, if someone has a heart attack, they go in, they get a doctor, they get operating table, hospital bed, cardiologist, no problem. But if you're someone struggling with mental health, it's often a struggle to get your insurance to pay for it, to find a provider. Even when your insurance is going to pay for it, providers don't always take that payment. It's not enough for them. So you have those who can afford it. Or oftentimes there's a huge deductible. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have, it's kind of like a class system. Those who can afford mental health care, get it. And those who don't, don't. The frustrating thing, too, is there's things that can be done, like there's all this red tape around the therapy. If officials would kind of pay attention and and lift those, it could help a lot. If they put more funding into things, it would help a lot, too. Yeah. And and is that happening at all yet? Is the federal government or Congress responding to this or even health insurers and the American healthcare system? There is some movement on the restrictions part where they're starting to lift some of these these the red tape, but so little, like not even a drop in the bucket has been put toward mental health. There was one uh estimate from uh, some of the leading mental health organizations in the country that there's something towards like 48.5 billion needed just to save what the mental health infrastructure we have already in place. Um, They requested that what they got back was less than 1%. Wow. And I think that one thing that we're seeing in all different spheres of, of medical treatment, but certainly with mental health, is that it's just harder to get help in person. That, you know, we're supposed to only be going out for emergencies or when, you know, there's a real crisis and otherwise we're supposed to stay in our own homes. But sometimes if you're stuck in a house with, you know, a family of people, it's difficult to yeah. actually have the conversations that you need to have in private with a therapist about what's going on. 
Yeah, one patient was telling me, um, this college student, just it's really, you know, the, the, the difficulties, everything's kind of moved suddenly online. And so the therapist she was seeing in um, Illinois, where she was going to school, after campus closed, she had to go home to Pennsylvania. Suddenly her therapist is saying, I'm forbidden from treating you across state lines. She had to scramble to find a new therapist. When she found a new therapist, you know, it's all telehealth. She's in the house with her mom and dad and those are the people, where, you know, those are the relationships that are under stress. It's hard. It's really awkward to talk about this is my problem with my mom, with your mom right outside your door, you know, in therapy. And at least when it comes to the problem of people wanting to talk to a therapist or talk to a mental health professional, but feeling like they're kind of stuck in a house and can't do it. I've heard a couple anecdotes from friends of, you know, going to talk to your therapist in a car and just kind of sitting in the car or getting a white noise machine. Yeah. Then you could theoretically talk to someone that you need to talk to and still feel like you have some form of privacy from the people who are in the next room. That's a really good point. Like the main thing is to like seek help when you need it, not to be afraid or hesitant to do that because what you want to do with a lot of these problems is you want to address it early on. It's just like any kind of ailment. You break your foot and you don't get help. It gets worse and worse and festers until the point where it becomes something quite serious. So reaching out any way that you can for help early on and not being afraid to do that is great. What we learn in the training and practice in our work is is being there for someone in that hard space and just making space for them. My colleague, Louise Velarde, who's a videographer, talked to one of the counselors at Crisis Text Line, a man named Jeff Schrum. They're this really great organization. They provide 24-hour access to counselors for anyone in any kind of mental health crisis. Some of the people I work with are probably being validated, being heard um, for the first time, perhaps. That, you know, it's just not something that a lot of people have in their lives as someone who will just listen without judgment, just stay with you in that difficult space. The one kind of good thing about this time we're in possibly is that, you know, everyone is suffering, everyone's mental health is suffering and there's less of a stigma that way. There's nothing to be ashamed of now because like everybody is stuck in their house. They're, everybody's driving each other insane. We can all talk <laughs> about it, you know, you know, we can all be like a source of comfort or like, you know, like we can complain about it to each other and vent it. The mental health can be less stigmatized right now. There is a silver lining. Again, Paul Gianfrido from Mental Health America. We've all understood from a distance, many of us, that mental health conditions were isolating by nature and created a lot of loneliness for people. Well, now we're all in the same boat. Everybody is feeling lonely. Everybody is feeling isolated. And the solution to loneliness and isolation is connectedness. And I wonder if this time will result in longer-term changes, both in attitudes toward mental health issues generally, and also in terms of how we do telehealth and taking down some of those barriers in the long term that have for a long time prevented people from getting help. It, there's some hope that this could happen. And in the best case scenario, this really could lead to a lot of reforms. You see the telehealth already kind of burgeoning now in a way that it hasn't before, that could mean like really great access for years to come. There are also people I talk to who are really worried that, you know, it's been such a broken system for decades that it's just going to get worse. So there is like with any 
thing dealing with, you know, it depends how you look at it, I guess, perspective. But also, you just got to hold on to some hope. I really do hope it leads to some changes. William One is a health reporter for The Post. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. You can also text a crisis counselor by messaging the crisis text line at 741-741. You can find those numbers at postreports.com. And now, one more thing from Post reporter Jacqueline Alamani about how younger generations could be getting left behind during the pandemic. Conspicuously left out of the $2 trillion stimulus package passed were high school seniors and many college students. This was, you know, particularly jarring to me as uh, an older millennial, you know, looking at my my Gen Z counterparts and younger millennials who have been through more economic and financial turmoil than, you know, any other generation in, in history, really. Between going through the terrorist attacks on 9-11 to the 2008 financial crisis to now the global pandemic that is the coronavirus crisis, all young people have really known has been financial turmoil that has dashed their career prospects and education prospects as so many young people are stuck at home. During the Great Depression, you know, when the increase in unemployment rate was greatest for young Americans, it skyrocketed by a 251% for 14 to 24-year-olds between 1930 and 1940. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal came up with the Civilian Conservation Corps and the National Youth Administration. And it put, you know, the, the CCC put over 3 million unemployed, unmarried young men to work during its eight-year span. They called it Roosevelt's Tree Army. Senator Josh Howley of Missouri, who's really been a champion of massive federal relief for American workers, rolled out legislation that would bar the Department of Education from providing universities with large endowments with federal relief money unless they spend some of that funding to help students cover the costs of the emergency. So, you know, there's definitely the opportunity for at least piecemeal legislation to be put together that can catch young people during this challenging time. But at the moment, it seems unlikely that something as, you know, vast as the New Deal measures could be replicated right now. Jacqueline Alamani is a reporter and writer for the Power Up newsletter from The Post. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're a loyal listener of the podcast and you have not yet left a review of Post Reports on your podcast app, now is a very good time to do that. Thank you to listeners RB Goodjoin, Sunshine Sheep, and Nikki in California. The kind words you posted on Apple Podcasts are very much appreciated, and they really do help other people discover our show. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.